You may be seated. Joy to be with you, brothers and sisters, uh, on this afternoon. Some of you who have been away for a few weeks that I see you returning. Um, after illness, it's good to have you back amongst the people of God. For those of you that are still online, uh, for a variety of reasons, but I know some of you are still ill, um, our hearts are with you. And I want to pray for you as well as we enter into the text today. It's a, it's a tense but tender passage we get to be a part of, and it's a real, real privilege. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your people who are gathered and who are scattered. Um, we thank you for the many gifts and the many members that make up your one body. So, Lord, we ask that you would unite us by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us words of truth and grace, that you would anoint us and you would prepare us for the work that you've given us to do this week. In Jesus' name, amen. As we enter into Epiphany, the season Epiphany, and our, our theme is kind of enlightened in the telling, we're going to spend six or seven weeks in the parables of Jesus uh, from the Gospel of Luke. We're going to encounter Jesus, the storyteller, it's an interesting fact of history that in the mid-2nd century, about 150 A.D. or so, we have written record of a Roman politician who was observing the Christians in the Roman Empire of that day. And he observed that they taught theology through stories. And he found this very peculiar. He said, now they have intellectuals and philosophers that can hang with the best of them these days, but that's not what sets them apart as unique. What sets them apart as unique is even those who cannot read and cannot write are still very learned in this faith. How does that happen? It's because they teach through telling stories. And it's a tradition that goes all the way back to Jesus himself. He is the storyteller. Because uh, one person said Jesus is kind of like a metaphorical theologian. He taught through stories. Because he not only wants to instruct the human mind with the truth of God, but he, he wants to ignite the heart with the grace of God, and he wants to capture the imagination with the glory of God. And so Jesus tells these little stories, which are called parables. And, and parable is, is literally parabole, to, to set something alongside of something else so that we may understand its reality from a different angle or a different vantage point. So when Jesus is telling parables, he's not just giving us nice little examples of abstract ideals or truths or nice little principles for ethical and moral life. What Jesus is doing is he is constructing a world of meaning and he is inviting us to inhabit that world of meaning a bit like going into a house. And as we become familiar with the house, it's as we peer out the windows of the house that then we see the rest of our lives, the people in our lives, our vocations, our relationships, our fears and our failures through a different framework because we've inhabited that place and that space. So that's what Jesus' parables are about. Not just a nice little illustration that you can tuck in your back pocket, but a brand new world to inhabit that casts fresh light on every aspect of your life. Now, this parable that we're looking at today is the parable of the two debtors. And we have uh, in, an image here of 
Mary anointing Jesus' feet, because this parable takes place within a larger story of this encounter between Mary and Jesus and Simon the Pharisee in particular. And what this story brings before us is I think this story in this parable invites us to examine how we as human beings make judgments. How we make judgments about ourselves, how we make judgments about others in our lives, and how we make judgments about Jesus himself as well. In the beginning of the passage, Simon judges very wrongly. <laughs> and then Jesus tells a little story, which is the hinge in the story, and then says, Simon, now you get it, you've judged rightly. And then Jesus looks at the woman while still talking to Simon. Notice the image of judgment. He's wanting to get Simon to view this woman differently the way he does. So he looks at the woman, and Jesus pronounces a definitive judgment on how he interprets her actions that he wants Simon to get along with. So the parable of the two debtors is all about creating a shift for Simon about how we, he makes judgments about himself, about the people in his life, this woman in particular, and about Jesus. And this theme is all throughout Luke's gospel. The, the language of judgment or justification or even justice all over these pages. Um, so how does Simon go wrong in his judgments? <laughs> Notice Simon invites Jesus into his house. And then the very first thing he does, and this would have jumped off the page if we were ancient kind of Near Eastern Jewish folk, is that Simon invites him into his house only to shame him by not offering him the typical courtesies and hospitality that you would have given a guest. So the second a guest comes in, in that world, you offer them a basin of water to wash their feet. If you have a servant, the servant to do it for them. You, you offer a kiss of welcome, and then you offer some sort, of some sort of oil for them, normally olive oil, for them to anoint themselves as they enter into the guest. So Simon is not just inviting Jesus over for a nice little happy meal where they can sit around and discuss grand ideas about life or their favorite pastimes. Simon is inviting Jesus over in particular to shame him, to withhold the honor and the, the hospitality that is rightfully Jesus due, especially as an honored teacher and rabbi in a Jewish culture. And this woman who is a sinner, considered a breaker of the law, not a keeper of the law like the Pharisee. She sees what has happened here. And she goes to Jesus and she offers Jesus the hospitality and honor that was withheld from him. But she goes above and beyond. She uses her tears, not water, to wash his feet. She unties her hair, which in that world would have been a highly scandalous thing. Uh, a woman in the Jewish world, you keep your hair tied in a shawl and you show no part of your hair because your hair is, is evocative not only of your beauty but of your sexuality as a, as a woman. So your hair is only let down for your husband to see and to feel and to touch. And, but she's got nothing to wash his feet, so she lets down her hair and uses that to wipe his feet. And then... She kisses his feet constantly. It's this image of a continuous action, not just once. 
And then she gets ointment, this precious and costly and expensive thing, far more expensive than oil, and she, and she pours it all over his feet. And so we get a couple scandals here. We get the scandal, first of all, of the fact that Simon invites Jesus over only to withhold what is his rightful due, and in a sense, not offer him the hospitality that he should have. And then we get the scandal of this woman offering the hospitality that he should have offered, but so much more, even though she's a sinner, but doing it in such a way that just would have been completely evocative and ludicrous in that time. And then you get Simon there at the dinner table as the host going, this has gone completely wrong. And yet Jesus is not in any way shunning this, per this woman or sending her away. And so you get Simon muttering under his breath in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And this is where we get another scandal right at the beginning. I think Simon not only misjudges Jesus, he not only misjudges this woman, but he misjudges himself. <laughs> there is no hint in this that Simon sees himself as a sinner too. It's, it's this woman. Or maybe another way to put it is, is maybe Simon does see himself as a sinner, but this woman is far worse a sinner, <laughs> far less respectable a sinner, far less deserving of Jesus' welcome and grace a sinner. And I think there are a lot of ways that we can do this, right? <laughs> where, where we don't categorize ourselves as being broken or sinful like other people, or where we can just say, you know what, I am kind of broken and sinful, but not as bad as that person. <laughs> I, I can kind of hang my head high because I deal with these things, but that person deals with this. And there are ways we can develop basically a series of respectable sins, right? Um, I love Todd Hunter. He wrote this book called um, Our Favorite Sins. And I think uh, there's a, Todd Hunter is our kind of bishop. He's the one who planted this church, for those of you that are new and don't know, uh, for about 10 years. And he wrote this book, um, Our Favorite Sins. And I think there's a bit of an interesting double nuance there. The first is the sins that we are most inclined toward. But I also think, secondly, is, is the sins that we um, are most, e most inclined to overlook and not take as, as seriously. Um, it's interesting that the pastor in New York, Tim Keller, once was preaching a, a sermon series on greed, or not a sermon series, but a, a sermon on greed. And, and he noted in the middle of the sermon that there was this one Puritan pastor in the 17th century in England who um, preached on greed, and he actually set a, a limit for his congregation as to the amount that they could have in their savings account, basically. <laughs> Um, and, and if you go over this amount, it's considered indulging in greed of some sort. And in his pastoral care visits, he would ch actually check in on people, like, how much are you withholding and this sort of thing. <laughs> and, and, and Tim just told the story. He's like, look, I'm not going to do that to you guys, you know. We're, we're not going to do that. But he said, I, I just share this story to tell you, um, I have never had a single person come up to me in my pastoral ministry and ever say, look, I'm really struggling with greed. And... I want to figure out how to deal with this sin in my life. Um, now, maybe I've had lots of people who have come up to me and say, I'm, stealing, I'm suffering with some sort of sexual immorality, and I want to seek healing in that, um, as we should. But 
but nobody's ever talked to me about greed. And so there are these ways in which, in any given time period, we can have a proclivity to either not see ourselves as sinners or to make different categories and hierarchies of sin. And normally when we do that, it's to the benefit of ourselves. I am not like this other person. I am not like this other person. So Simon judges wrongly on three accounts. He does not recognize the divine presence in Jesus and does not honor him. He does not see God's grace at work in this woman's life. And he does not see his own need for grace. And so Jesus says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> and, and, and here Jesus is, is confronting him. Um, when was it? I think it was my first uh, vestry meeting, my first church council meeting at Holy Trinity. I think it was about my second week. Somebody turned to me at the very beginning of the meeting and said, Jordan, we have something to say to you. And said, you're fired. And that was supposed to be a joke, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the point was, is I was totally shocked, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I knew it was a joke right away. But, but what Jesus is saying to this person, he is, he, is, he, is, he is confronting Peter head on here in what he's about to say. And at first, Peter seems to get it, but then it's going to be utterly shocking as Peter goes on. So he says, I mean, he says to Simon, a certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, Denarii in your, your typical peasant was about a day's wage. So we're talking here about a year and a half worth of wages. And the other 50, so about a couple months worth of wages. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. What Jesus is doing here is he is inviting Simon through this story to actually view himself, to view Jesus, and to view this woman from a different light, to see things from a different angle. And there's three things that Jesus does that totally explodes Simon's worldview. The first is, is Jesus just says, there are two people who are debtors here. <laughs> um, everyone is a debtor owes a debt that they cannot pay. Um, there's a pastor in New York named Drew Jackson who wrote this poem, There Are Three Kinds of Sinners. <laughs> he said, first, those who know it. Second, those who don't know it. And third, those who don't care. Uh, the first kind who know it pour perfume on Jesus' feet. And the second and third kinds stand back in judgment over such waste. There are those who know it, there are those who don't, and there are those who don't care. And what Jesus is saying is that, um, Simon, the nature and extent of your sin when compared to this woman may be radically different. <laughs> she may be the, the woman who, 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 uh, who frequents the city streets and all the sins that comes along with that. And you may be the, the man who sits in the church pews, but there's a whole host of sins that come with that. And, and her debt may even be more than yours, potentially. But both of you have a debt that you owe that you cannot pay, meaning you are totally dependent on another for life and health and salvation. 
And then he says, God is extravagantly generous to all debtors. And so when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. And I think this is one, one of the, the absurd economics of grace <laughs> uh, in, in this passage. Is, is it saying that God has a heart to cancel and forgive the debt of all, no matter how large, to deal with it in full? And what this is saying is that it's undercutting any sort of meritocracy in the kingdom of God, but it's also saying that God takes no half measures. The salvation that this money lender brings is full and it's complete and it's, and it's lacking nothing. And, and when we experience the fullness and completeness of this salvation, it cannot help but bring a new orientation towards God and towards one another into our lives. I was reading over in December this book by uh, someone named Calvin Miller named The Singer, and it's kind of like a mythological or allegorical retelling of the Christian redemption story um, in terms of Jesus being a singer who sings a song that cannot be silenced. It's, it's a really beautiful, like, 150-page poem, basically. And at one point, he's, he's paraphrasing the, the Beatitudes, and, and he has this beautiful paraphrase of the Beatitudes. Um, Excuse me for the gender-exclusive language here, but I'm just representing the, uh, the poem as it is. He says, Blessed is the man who stands before the greatest king and fears only God. And blessed is the greatest king who stands before the weakest man and thinks only of all their similarities. And when I read that, it just floored me. I thought to myself, yeah, that's grace, isn't it? That's grace. If you can stand before the greatest, most powerful king and, and fear only God, and if you can stand before the weakest of human beings and think of only your similarities. And so what, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, Simon, you and this woman actually have a lot more in common than you think. You both owe a debt that you cannot pay, and, and you both have that debt has been completely paid in full. And, but he said, Simon, the thing that you don't understand is that where the difference between you, the two of you shows up is that the greatest debtors, by God's grace, tend to be the greatest lovers. The greatest debtors, by God's grace, tend to be those who are the greatest lovers. And this is where Jesus drives this home in dramatic fashion. He's still talking to Simon the Pharisee, and he turns. Luke is very intentional to tell us. He turns and he looks at the woman who is at his feet, probably still kissing them. And, he's, and he continues talking to Simon and says, Simon, you did not give me water, yet her tears have washed my feet. You did not... Give me oil to anoint, yet she's anointed me with perfume. You did not give me the kiss of welcome, and yet she has not stopped kissing my feet from the very beginning. Those who have been forgiven much, Simon, are those who love very much, Simon. And what Jesus does is he says the lavishness and the extravagance of this woman's love for Jesus is indicative of the lavishness and the extravagance of God's loving forgiveness of this woman. And he brings us straight back to the heart of the gospel. 
It's not just that we owe a debt we cannot pay. It's not just that we receive a forgiveness that we cannot earn. It's that we show a love that we cannot reserve. And Jesus presses in on this relationship between forgiveness and love and says it's so important to understand this for for what it means to be a disciple of mine. Um, One way to think of it is like a tree in the desert. Um, The deeper your roots grow into forgiveness the more your fruit will bear in love. It's about transformation of the heart by the grace that was not expected, by the grace that was not earned, but by the grace that was given without limit. You see, there's so many aspects of God's goodness and grace that the heart needs to receive and contemplate and be surrounded by and be gripped by in order for us to be transformed. But Jesus is bringing us to the crown jewel. He's bringing us to the center of the gospel. It's it's what we say in our creed every single day. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the forgiveness of sins. We're brought back to the simplicity of the gospel. It was Jesus who said the great commandment is this. First, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do you and I grow in love when we're fallen and finite creatures? I think here Jesus is saying it's to have your heart always in a place of receiving the forgiveness of your sins. Coming back to that place constantly. It's part of what I love about Anglican spirituality. Some people think it's pretty down in the dumps and gets harsh on humanity <laughs> and in the seriousness with which it takes sin. But, but I think what it's trying to do is by daily prayer of confession, by weekly gathering together and kneeling to confess our sins as a community, we are putting ourselves in a position to once, a, once again receive the gospel at its core, receive the gospel at its most countercultural, receive the gospel at its most transformational, the forgiveness of our sins. And it's as we experience that over and over again, God works in us to produce love for Jesus, love for those that at first we didn't want to associate with at all. I'm reminded of this um, because I think it helps with our relationships. (laughs) Sometimes when we have difficulty loving someone, um, often it's because they've really made us mad or something. (laughs) Or we think they're wrong, or or we think they're they're sinful in this situation, or I don't know about you, but if if I'm having difficulty loving somebody, it's often because I think I'm the one that that owes 50 denarii and they owe, owe 500, you know. And, and often when that happens, then they're kind of like lawns, lines drawn in the sand. And there's this sense of like, I, I'm sitting in judgment over you. <laughs> Until you acknowledge um, your 500 and deal with that, <laughs> I'm not dealing with my 50, you know. Um, and, and what I realize often in that place is what I need to be reminded of is I need to be reminded of my 50. Um, I need to be reminded that just like this person, I need grace as much as they do. 
And Jesus has come to save me as much as he's come to save them. And when that happens, that starts to change the orientation of a relationship, right? It may, it may not change the fact that maybe this person really does owe 500 and I only owe 50. I mean, it's not always equal the pain and the hurt and the brokenness, right? But what it starts to change in us is, is this spiritual posture of it's as I receive forgiveness afresh for myself that, that my capacity to love increases and grows. It's, it's as I for, receive forgiveness afresh that my capacity to love increases and grows. So our first epiphany of, the first parable of epiphany brings this imagery of debt, economic debt, and brings us to the heart of the gospel through that. It says, all of us owe a debt we cannot pay and all of us have had our debts canceled. And it's those that know how deep their debts are that are those that are most thankful and lavish and extravagant in their love. How did God do this? Well, Paul wrote to the, a letter to the Colossians, and he too brought up this image of debt. He said, you who were once dead in your trespasses, living a life in the flesh, God made alive together with Christ having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And so Paul uses this image, quite literally, of Jesus hanging on the cross. I mean, think of the feet that we see here that are being anointed and so tenderly loved and washed having a nail driven through them so that his body is staked on bare wood. And between Jesus' feet, who have been anointed for this moment, and that wooden cross is this list of every debt we have ever owed. Hanging there for all to read, but completely forgiven and canceled. The blood of his feet dripping down until that written, written record can no longer be seen. It's one of the simplest things of the gospel. I remember when I was four years old and I became a Christian, my parents, I invited Jesus into my heart for the first time. <clears throat> parents just told me, Jordan, Jesus came to forgive you for your sins. And there was a period in my life where I felt like, wow, that's really truncated and trite. Um, the gospel is about so much more than that, isn't it? And in one sense, it's true. But I also feel like the older that I get, the more I come back to just the beauty of that simple statement. Yes, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. He's forgiven my sin. My brothers and sisters, I speak these to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.